Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Florence Chu, higher degree research social science advisor at Macquarie University. Dr. Chu, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Jonathan, for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. And, and in full disclosure, you were my writing teacher uh, for, <laughs> uh, during a six-week course. So it's, it's quite a thrill to get this, uh, th- this time to, to talk to you. And I guess uh, before we start off, it's kind of an interesting thing because this, this paper is about education. But you mm-hmm. know the, the old phrase, those who can't do teach? That doesn't really apply to you because you, you're a great writing teacher and also a great writer. So kudos to you. Oh, thank you. It was nice to have you in class and obviously nice to have you since you're in Tokyo and the rest of us are in Sydney. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it, I, I was very almost, unfortunately, um, for, for everyone else that's been negatively affected by COVID-19, uh, I don't think I would have been able to take this class if it wasn't for COVID-19. So, so I'm I'm a little bit thankful that I was able to do, to to take that. I guess this is a course you teach um, in a classroom, right? Yeah, I mean, ordinarily I, it would be a face to face class. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So the article we're going to discuss today is called "A Post-Human Pedagogy with Rancier and Bateson," and mm-hmm. th- this is an article that you so you submitted in 2015. And it was accepted in, in 2016. So I guess before we get into the paper, can you, can you give me a little bit of your, your background of maybe, um, for example, wh- what you were doing around that time and what led you to doing this, this research at that time? Okay. Um, uh, yeah, like it's been a while since I've read this paper. So it's a nice opportunity to review what I was doing in 2015, 2016. I guess my memory would put me, you know, I was probably a couple of years into my job at Macquarie University. So I trained, um, at the University of New South Wales as a medical sociologist. So that's my research background. Um, and I probably finished up around 2013, was looking for work and um, got myself a position as the HDR learning advisor at Macquarie University around 2014. So I was sort of fairly new um, in this role. And, you know, the, the, the biggest part of my role, as you know, is to, you know, mentor research candidates or postgraduates from master's by research degrees to PhD level, um, anything from research-related skills, so writing skills, writing for publication, um, and you know, critical thinking skills, around any, anything around that. Um, but because I was actually not really trained to do that, I mean, I did. You know, I, I, I've always enjoyed writing, and I do quite well, I think, in academic writing. Um, but my my actual research background wasn't entirely in education, so I think I spent the first couple of years at Macquarie really just thinking about what it might mean to be an educator in this role and how I might bring my sociological training to bear on um, education. So I think that was pretty much what I was doing. I was reading around, you know, so Bateson is an anthropologist and I worked with his work in my PhD um, a fair bit. And I got, um, I think I got recommended by another colleague to read Jacques Rancier, who's a French philosopher. And he's got this beautiful book called The Ignorant Schoolmaster. And even though he's a philosopher, the book was really all about education and what, you know, learning means. Um, It was a philosophical treatise on, 
you know, who learns um, and how we think about the relationship between the teacher and the learner, or in his words, the master and the student. So I was sort of thinking around those terms um, a fair bit when I was, you know, working on this piece. And I thought it would be really interesting to bring together my, you know, experience working with Gregory Bateson, who's an anthropologist, um, and Jacques Rancière, who's a philosopher, also interested in questions of learning and relational dynamics in the classroom. So you said your your PhD was in medical so- sociology. Mm-hmm. What what exactly is that? Um, so I'm interested in I guess the intersection between medicine or people's experiences of health, illness, and well being, um, and what those experiences might tell us about I guess the values we place as a society on anything to do with people's bodies, quality of life, how we care for each other, um, both in health, professional healthcare settings and, you know, in our kind of day-to-day relationships. So medical sociology is a kind of fairly broad interdisciplinary field that crosses, if you like, how we think about health in modern societies and people's kind of lived experiences of their own kind of lives and, and health. So when you were doing your PhD or, or, be, or even before you started your PhD, did you, did you have an idea of what kind of job you were, you were interested in doing? Did you have an ideal? Because it, it did eventually lead you to education, or were you open-minded to sort of take um, whatever path uh, presented itself? Yeah, I think a bit of both. I mean, you know, my experience as a PhD student, I th- and I suspect that might be true of many PhD students, is you do... You do the research for the love of it. And I think I was very lucky to, you know, have a supervisor who encouraged that and really motivated me to kind of pursue, you know, what interests me. Um, And it didn't matter. There were no boundaries or parameters placed around what's possible as a research topic. So I think I learned very early on just by feeling my way into things. And, you know, I was always interested in, kind of experiences of mental health and well-being. Um, You know, my first degree was in psychology, and so I moved into sociology only for my PhD. So I, you know, kind of really wandered around different disciplines and realized it didn't really matter which discipline you were in so long as you were, you know, fully invested in the subject matter while you were doing it. So when I was doing my PhD, I I guess I assumed that, you know, I, I love writing, I love research, that perhaps that would be a career option. Um, so I kind of followed my nose, and when I finished up with the PhD, I looked around for a job, and the job at Macquarie University came up, and it was quite an unusual one because I put, you know, do my research as a medical sociologist, but I didn't really teach in the sociology department, so I taught to a wider kind of higher-level group of postgraduate students. So that kind of one-on-one mentoring work and, you know, kind of smaller writing courses that I learned to design and and develop, that was fairly new to me. But I think because I enjoyed teaching and I had a fair bit of teaching experience during my PhD um, just as a tutor, I think that kind of lent itself quite well um, to to the role that I found myself in. Well, we'll get back to your your teaching um, maybe maybe a little bit later because I, I think you're uh, one of the better teachers I've I've ever had. And um, again, this 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 whole article you're touching a lot of interesting points and a lot of debatable points, which mm-hmm. which I'm I'm sure people would be interested to to read and to to argue or to talk about uh, themselves. 
But that, mm-hmm. uh, so maybe towards the end of the interview, we'll come back to your, your teaching style. Um, okay. So in, the, in this paper, um, I think you do a, a really good job of laying out, you know, the, the background with Rancier and, and Bateson and you interweave, um, you know, some, 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 you know, key points that are happening with, you know, for example, social media and higher learning and curriculum development and even testing. Um, I guess before we start getting into the paper, I'm, I'm just curious. Now, you, you might have indicated it uh, along the way, but like, what's your, what's your opinion about an ideal construct of, of an education system? If you were, to, would, it, would it vary? I'm assuming it would vary between ages, or, 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 or am I wrong on that? Like, it, it, would, it, it might be one way for primary, junior would be one way, secondary would be one way. Uh, you know, university would be one way. Do you have a sort of a concept of if you if you had the power to create your own education system, what would it mm. look like? Well, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know if I have an ideal construct of you know what an ed, what an what an education system could be for different age groups. I mean, I'm sure they'll it'll depend, like you know, developmentally. But I suppose, like for me. You know, if I think about my own experiences, um, then that's probably where I would start. Like I had a, I guess, an interesting childhood. If I could talk about talk a little bit about my own personal experiences sure. in education, um, I was born in Malaysia, um, but I was educated in a few different places. So I lived in Singapore, um, did some of my schooling there, and then I also, you know, kind of moved to New Zealand um, and, you know, spent some time there before coming to Australia. So I had, I suppose, a fairly, you know, kind of wide-ranging cross-cultural experience with slightly different education systems. And obviously my, you know, my parents were pretty open about, you know, what education might mean because they moved around a fair bit. So we just went along with what was available. And I think from that experience, now in hindsight, one of the best things about kind of just being immersed in different education systems was precisely that, that it was different, that that there was so much diversity in what counted as learning. Like in an Asian context, things were a lot more, you know, they were a lot more structured, a lot more disciplined. And I think I learned most of my discipline from being in those education systems. Um, and then obviously in Australia, things are yet again quite different. And it wasn't that they were mutually exclusive, but there was a lot more emphasis on you know, kind of creative play and and learning outdoors and being in nature. Um, that was, yeah, that was, I guess, just different. And so I had, I suppose, the best of both worlds. Um, and I think coming into a, a teaching space, what I really think about when I think about, you know, what, I don't know, like I put good education in quotation marks because it's so, so varied. What I really think about um, when I think about those terms is really, you know, to being open to learning and learning in the wider sense of the word, um, and education, even as as a word, like it literally means educing, so really drawing someone out. And I think there's a lot to be said for not confining, you know, kind of rigidly a learning environment, even within the context of classrooms, so physical spaces inside classrooms, but just being able to see that learning takes place everywhere. And I think this is something that. You know, like I think experientially, we all can attest to some of our best learning moments might have also come from, 
life experiences that were excruciatingly painful, but we, you know, take those experiences with us into the more formal context of, you know, our classrooms. Um, you know, we could talk about it in terms of resilience. We could talk about it in terms of persistence. Um, those qualities, I think, are just as important to learning well, whatever the curriculum is, as they are, um, you know, kind of responding to the actual curriculum itself. I don't know if that makes sense in the context of your question. No, I, I think I think it does. And and this is something that you talk a lot about in the paper. And I guess let, let's let's jump. That's a good sort of uh, launching point to get into the paper. So mm-hmm. I guess for people that aren't, you know, really familiar with post-humanism, can you give a, sort of a brief description of post-humanism and how you found it to intersect with education? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so post-humanism is, I guess, the way that I would summarize it. It's it's an intellectual, it's a theoretical movement. Um, it's it's fairly kind of, uh, I guess, prominent now, um, at least in North American and European contexts, certainly in Australia as well. The way the way that I would describe it is, it's an intellectual movement that challenges the assumption of human exceptionalism or anthropocentrism. So by that, I mean that it challenges, um, you know, any thought patterns, any thought paradigms and ways of thinking, ways of, you know, producing public policies that assume that human beings are the most important species in the world um, or that any agent of change necessarily begins from, you know, the the human condition to other non-human animals or to the environment. So post-humanism by definition or by relationship, has a lot to offer in, you know, arguments and debates intellectually um, around kind of ecology, like ecological questions of sustainability. Um, you know, how do we think about diversity in the world or in nature if we now start to really seriously think about the impacts of um, human action on the environment um, and how we can shift our mindsets to think about um, ecological relations as relationships rather than as hierarchical, um, I guess, patterns that begin with human actions on, you know, non-human others in the world. So I, I guess that, that, that was, that was interesting to me because I'm not really familiar with, with post, with post-humanism, but that, that's a, that's a great description. So, so thanks for that. Um, now I, I was looking, uh, I don't know if you have the paper in front of you, but on on page two, you were doing a bit of um, I don't know if this is a brief literature review with with Biesta and Peterson, and you 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 you, I liked one of the lines you had. You said our educational. I guess you're referencing those authors. Our educational oblivion to those who do, who do not neatly belong in the human community means we look away from what seems unfamiliar, uncomfortable, and unsettling. All the things that engender critical and empathetic acuity in our students. So that's where you sort of uh, hooked me. That this is where they they is that what you were is that is that the idea that you were targeting? And again, going back to your point of going to Singapore and New Zealand and Australia, that you were opened up to different communities. Is that is this the the hook that you were sort of uh, looking to, to to grab the reader early on? way i wasn't thinking so much about i guess my my personal experience but i think you're you're right there like one of the one of the things that i really enjoyed reading people like biesta and peterson um who you know link up post-humanist perspectives with education 
is a sense of the widening of what we mean when we think of the subject. We often think about the subject as automatically a human subject, human subject because only human beings have consciousness and um, and are able to intend things to happen, decide things that happen. Whereas I think when we start to bring a post-humanist framework to education or to context of learning and knowing, it really does challenge our long-held assumptions of what it might mean to be, what it might mean to be alive, to learn, um, and who decides, you know, what is learned is considered the right sorts of knowledge um, and and the right sorts of knowledge for whom. So the larger question here is also, I suppose, an ethical and a political question um, of, you know, what what we assume to be the right way to, to do anything. And in this context, what is the right context for learning? And the curriculum that we learn is always historically and culturally situated and will, you know, betray certain political um, agendas to the exclusion of others. Now, I've I've heard of the ignorant schoolmaster. That's that's pretty famous. Um, but I, I I haven't heard of of Bateson. So why why did you choose this anthropologist, and why did you decide to link these two? Did 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 you look at it in a way that these two kind of disagree, but then you see that they agree, or do you, did you see that they agree explicitly? Um, I think there was a little bit of both. I mean, Rancière's uh, book, The Ignorant Schoolmaster, really focuses quite, you know, kind of specifically on um, changing our assumptions that learning and teaching is is a two-way street. So you've got the teacher who, you know, imparts information to the student and the student who receives. So Roncia's main thing in that little book, and it's a, quite a small book, um, is to challenge that kind of relationship where one's just receiving information and the other one's imparting expertise. And he does sort of locate that in, you know, the context of classrooms and and knowledge systems. The reason I I guess I got interested in trying to bring Roncia's um, approach in conversation with Bateson is because Bateson's really opening up that question of knowing and the relationships that between knower and and known or knower and um, the object of, you know, knowledge. Um, he's really opening up to a, a larger ecological context. So one of Bateson's, um, I think I cited somewhere as well, um, one of Bateson's most unconventional definitions of the mind or of knowledge or of learning um, is is the way that he really opens it up. And he asks questions like, you know, what's the relationship between the way we think about the grammar of a sentence um, or the mystery of biological evolution or you know, the way that we think about ecological crises in humanity's relationship with the environment. These all seem to be very different relationships that don't get put into conversation. But nevertheless, they are also, you know, kind of produced by the ecology of ideas that we live and breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the ideas that we have are reflections of what matter to us um, as a community, as a society, in, in whatever cultural and historical context we are in. So I think what Bateson gives us when he starts to enlarge the question of education and learning and what you know constitutes the parameters of the mind, when he starts to enlarge that as an ecological phenomenon, um, that really also opens up Rancière's kind of more narrow classroom context to... Um, it being thought as an ecological phenomenon. Okay, and so you you reference Bateson's ecological theory of mind. Mm-hmm. Is that what you is that what you've just explained, or is there more to it? 
Yeah, pretty much. That's what I, I mean, that's, that's how I would explain it, that he's got, we are, we can, you know, I think it comes back to the question around post-humanism in that we often associate kind of quite automatically and I suppose understandably, uh, we associate the mind with the human mind because we, we're not used to thinking about um, the mind and the attributes associated with having a mind with anything other than what it means to be human. But Bateson's, um, I guess, work as an anthropologist and his own experience doing empirical research with different cultural people from different cultural backgrounds and also with scientists uh, cognitive scientists of his time he was working in the 70s I think, I think those experiences led him to really radicalize or transform the idea that when we talk about the mind we necessarily mean the human mind and in fact we might mean something larger that thinking itself is an ecological phenomenon um, and that is reflected in the way we as human beings think about our relationship to nature and, and to the larger world. So you, you, you had a term that I'd never seen before, epistemology, how we know what we know. Hmm. Is that is that something that Bateson discusses or is that something yeah. that Rancier discusses? Um, I think they both do, but probably ba more, more Bateson in, in this paper anyway. Um, and yeah, I mean, epistemology literally means, you know, how we know what we know. Um, but often in that phrase, we assume that we um, is the human being knowing things about the world and doing things to the world rather than being known by his or her ecological relationships because all of the world and all of nature are patterns that connect each other. And that's kind of Bateson's phrase. So epistemology for Bateson is a very old philosophical discourse that talks about how human beings know what we know. Um, and Bateson would want to say, you know, Bateson would argue that epistemology is also a larger ecological question of how humanity is already known by its relationship with nature. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a linear causal relationship between, you know, humans knowing the world rather than humans as part of the ecological phenomenon that it wants to know. Okay. And so that, that leads us into your, your first uh, story, which is, which is something that you really highlighted during the writing class. And you even, you gave us um, a, a storyline guide, if I can just uh, read it to um, the listeners here. Yeah, this is something that I actually keep up. Now, you gave us a lot of great advice, and you even recommended uh, Joseph Harris's book, Rewriting, um, which mm -hmm. is something that I bought. But the the, the simple, you, you these three points that you, you, you gave us in uh, regarding story, and I leave this sort of open on my computer when I'm writing now. Number one, whose point point or points of view is are being represented? Number two, can you identify a central organizing thing that holds the paragraphs together? What is it? How have you identified this theme? And number three, can you hear the author's storyline clearly? Who do you think the story will appeal to? And um, I don't know. For some reason, those three points, just having those up in front of me, has has helped my writing uh, immensely. So I, I feel the, not only the, the, the idea that you, you had talked about in your class about how just humans love stories and mm. you, you actually give us a real story on, on page three, you give us the, the ignorant, the ignorant schoolmaster story, but you're also thinking about story in, in, a, in other contexts a, as well. Um, so it, it, did I summarize your, your opinions of story? Is that how you sort of look at it when you're writing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason I really like them, you know, it's not necessarily just a metaphor, but it's a really useful one, the metaphor of the story. It's because stories are 
you know, what we live by. You know, we construct our life narratives through story and there's such a deep sort of desire, and it's a, I guess it's a human desire, for coherence. Um, and as a writer, it doesn't matter what sort of writer you are, and as a reader, it doesn't matter what you're reading, that desire for coherence is really strong, which is why when we get confused in a piece of writing, um, it's a it's a disorienting experience. And so we're really trying to piece together, you know, some kind of a storyline that that tells the story or tells a narrative from beginning to end while holding on to the paradox that as we're writing, writing is a messy process. We never begin with a line, um, but we find it as we're writing. So it, I guess it comes back to my my interest in Roncier's, um, you know, advice around learning that, you know, you, whoever finds, uh, you know, always finds something. It may not be the thing that they started off looking for, but they find something to relate to what they already know. So it's a sort of an interesting kind of paradox that we that isn't necessarily a problem but it's something that we all you know it's a tension that we all strive to navigate or balance and i love this this story um that that's in the ignorant schoolmaster uh regarding a a teacher who is very well-rounded teaches many subjects um fluent in many languages um but is not doesn't speak flemish so can you can you give us um, can you give the the listeners maybe that give give us the quick rundown of of that story and what happens? Ah, so that's the um, that's the story that Rancière begins. I mean, it's sort of a little bit more of a parable, um, you know, that he's constructed to really illustrate what he's trying to get at when he talks about you know how we have to be able to encourage learners because we're all learners to learn without the idea of a master explicator without the idea of a template answer or you know sort of the true master who will have the answer that we can then hang on to so in the ignorant school master um his book the story that he uses as a parable um you know it's based on this man called joseph jacoto and he was placed in a classroom. He was probably like a training teacher placed in a classroom. He was very intelligent. He could do, he could learn, you know, he could um, sort of teach many subjects like French literature, ancient languages like Latin and Greek, law, mathematics. But then he was faced with a really challenging um, task of teaching French to a group of Flemish students. So Flemish students um, don't speak French and he could all, he couldn't speak any Flemish. So the, the headmaster couldn't speak any Flemish. So, I mean, the, the curious thing that he did was, well, let's let's give it a go. Like the only thing that they shared in common, so the teacher and the students, was this bilingual edition of Homer's Greek epic, the, the Odyssey. And so he treated this as an experiment and he got his students to read the entire text um, and to just read it so well that they could almost kind of recite it by heart um, in, in their home, in their native language, uh, Flemish. And then to try after this exercise to write it out in French, you know, even though they didn't really know French, just write it out in whatever way they, they thought they, they could sort of um, understand. And so, you know, this was more of a thought experiment that, you know, for, for Roncier who was telling this parable uh, that it could lead to many kind of different outcomes. And the outcome that he visualized was that the Flemish students, even though they were left to their own devices, actually picked up a lot more French than they thought they had just by reading and and thinking through what might be the correspondences between the two languages. So that was a kind of little parable that I really liked. Now, this is something that I think is happening in Sweden, um, which is known for having some of the best education in the world. 
this this idea of uh, dual learning through context. So I, I I'm pretty sure I read maybe this was a couple years ago that they were they were sort of transforming their curriculum so they were going to teach all subjects via a particular unit in history. So for example, uh, World War II, and they would learn math, economics, literature. Um, everything that that they would learn, but in the context of this one area in in history, and they they were finding that that's a more sort of uh, maybe more motivating for students than just teaching these subjects in isolation. Is that kind of what Rancier w- was going for here? Yeah, I think so. I think that's that would be a really nice kind of contemporary parallel to what he was trying to um, illustrate through that parable. Yeah. All right, and then you you move on, and then we're on um, page four here, and you start you you do an interesting thing where you you bring up this point about at risk students and labeling at risk students, and how actually through through the act of labeling an at at risk student can can cause a vicious cycle, and I, as I'm it's a, I got to be honest when I was reading that paragraph I started to have some some like opinions like oh I wanted to argue with you a bit, and mm. I thought you did a really nice thing where you at the bottom of that I don't know if you you sensed I mean you did sort of set up the re- the reader that uh, there were controversial claims, um, and you did you did a good job of that but as I was reading I I kind of wanted to argue something there and then I felt like you did a good job of acknowledging the reader and acknowledging a difference in a possible difference in opinion at the bottom of the paragraph you write, the implications of this point will become clearer when we examine the turn to vulnerability and well-being in contemporary educational discourse. So you kind of, you said, hold off if you're, if you have some, some problems here, just stick with me. And uh, I, I thought you did, that's something you, you talked about in your writing class about how um, when you're reading something, you, it should be an active conversation. When you're writing something, you should also be, be aware of the reader. Is that something you were, you were thinking of, you didn't want to get in, into the weeds too deep with sort of a debate there. Is that what you were thinking about? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, also it is a really controversial, I guess, to- topic around vulnerability and, and well-being. Um, and, you know, sort of what, what it might mean to place students at risk or to identify, you know, at risk students really early on. So, you know, we're, we're trying to support students who might need more support um, and to do that well. But at the same time, I think the challenge for educators and for institutions is to really not make that an, a bureaucratic exercise of labeling. Um, and I think that's probably what I was trying to get at. And I get at, at it, you know, kind of in the second half of the paper after I've set up a bit more of a, I guess, a theoretical framework using Roncia and Bateson. So it would make more sense why I might argue um, the thing that I do, which is to really be quite mindful and, you know, at this, to acknowledge that there, there is good value in the work um, that we do in universities around, you know, sort of placing students in, um, in kind of support areas that they might need more help with in, in anything to do with their emotional well-being, um, but at the same time also really being kind of quite careful about how we do that so we don't necessarily fall into the trap of, labeling students prematurely. Hmm. And I guess this is another uh, good outlet for the podcast when, you know, this is something that you could do in a presentation and you could open up, you know, a a question and answer 
Um, but I feel that the podcast is, is a good, is a good time to sort of, you know, draw some, draw some things out. Is this, is this something that you've presented on and you've had to debate in, in front of an audience? Um, not, not quite. I mean, not as a form, not in a formal setting suddenly, but I remember now as we're having this conversation that when I was writing this paper, I did test some of these ideas with, you know, colleagues of mine, um, because I, I did realize that I, I wasn't always sure, you know, what the, what the larger implications of my argument was. And I think I, you know, coming back to what we were saying around, you know, storyline and really just, trying to anticipate what your reader needs and what they expect. I was very aware, I think, at the time that the argument that I felt drawn to, which is that we really need to be careful how we are setting in place these bureaucratic procedures around labelling students as vulnerable at risk or at risk, um, that my argument actually leaned to a critical stance on that Um, and I was well aware that that was quite a controversial take um, and so I did test the idea with a few colleagues. And like you say, people argued with me and debated with me. Um, but I think on balance, what I tried to produce in this paper was really to take on people's feedback and to acknowledge that this is a, you know, it's it's not an easy, it's a complex um, question that doesn't have easy answers. And that part of my goal really is to just open up a conversation about it rather than to lean on one answer or the other. Now, are you talking about the implications of when you label a student at risk, for example, learning disabled, and then they would be placed with other students who are learning disabled, and that could cause, you know, some, you know, cause some effects, you know, where a student starts to think that they're at risk, and, and then it lowers their self-esteem, and it can cause a cycle in in that way. Are you, are you talking about the actual, like, the, the, the administrator's uh, creating uh, a bias and then teaching them differently. That it's a it's a kind of a complicated issue. Yeah, it's a it's a very complicated issue. And you know, I certainly don't touch on too much of that empirical research in this paper because it was set up to be more or less theoretical. I mean, just for the you know, given the scope of the paper, I I could only cover this much. But yeah, I think in some ways I was you know when I think of at risk, I also I mostly also think of what students how students perceive themselves to be vulnerable, to need extra help, to be at risk um, of, you know, failing or doing badly. And and I think, you know, there's help-seeking behaviour that's, that's really important. Um, and I think that's where all of these support kind of networks at the university, they're incredibly useful and, and really valuable. But there's also, I think, when perhaps when we overdo it, I mean, my worry sometimes, and I can only, you know, talk about this in the context of my own kind of more anecdotal experiences mentoring students, um, my worry sometimes is that we create a cultural environment where there's almost a bit of learned helplessness, where students might, you know, immediately go, this is too hard, I need more help, um, rather than that, this is hard, I actually need to sit with it. Um, and the help that I need is for someone, a teacher, a mentor, to sit with me as they witness me through this really challenging time and offer me, you know, a hold the space for me so that I can actually learn and know that this is hard, that everybody finds it hard, um, that I'm not alone, that I don't need any other intervention to help me, but that I need to work through the challenge 
um, and over time that I will work through the challenge. So, I mean, it's a kind of a more intangible way of thinking about, you know, measures to help someone um, rather than to think, you know, these are like X number of instruments um, for you to, you know, like once you, once you do these things, you'll definitely improve. So I guess like I'm trying to sort of tap into a more intangible qualitative lift experience of working through challenges by sitting with them. Well, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point because I, I would say that I, I can, I, I have two sort of, you know, stories that can apply to that. No, number one is, you know, how I came to be in your class where I would consider myself pretty good at English and I, and I would say I'm pretty uh, quite strong. I thought I was quite strong at writing and I'm writing a few different papers in, in, a, in a, my, uh, I'm in my second year of the MRES. So I'm, my, my, my data collection is, is kind of on hold, but I was doing the introduction and then I also had to do a research frontiers and then I had to write another paper uh, sort of outlining the, the app. So I had a few things going on and then I just felt like I was just totally stuck on this uh, research frontiers essay and mm-hmm. just, just completely just stuck. And it just, it's a, just a terrible, terrible feeling. And then, but I, in the past, I remember I had sought out tutors whenever I felt, st- so I kind of s- sat in it, in it for a while and felt sorry for myself and got angry for, you know, or you know, that feeling, right? And then I realized, I looked back and I said, you know what, when I've had problems in the past, I went and got tutors. So then I sort of looked online a bit on Macquarie's page and I saw there was like a peer tutor and I sat with uh, her for, you know, 45 minutes and then I saw your class and I said, oh, I'll definitely take that. And then as I started working through your class, um, things just started to get open. Like I got what I needed, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the point is, I think one of the things that I'm sort of responding to is that people need to maybe label, people need to accept that, okay, it's okay to get help. But for example, like if you had labeled me or if you were my advisor and you like my first draft of my research frontiers was just a mess. You know, at the time I thought it was great, but now looking back, it was a mess. And the, the, the feedback I got was quite honest and I'm glad, um, they, they were this honest with me, but it was a bit devastating at the time. Cause I thought it was sort of, Oh, I'm finished with this. I'll tick it off my list and go on to the next thing. They're like, Whoa, 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 this is kind of a mess. They didn't say it like that. Um, but if I, at, at, at that time, if my if my advisor had, had labeled me at risk, of failing right or at risk of a bad writer or something like that that would be totally different than me sort of you know know, acknowledging okay i need help and i guess there's that balance we're telling people it's okay to ask for help and and as on the other end where you're labeling someone at risk that that's you know what i mean yeah i know exactly what you mean and i think you're you're right like that's that's really what i mean as well i think I mean, it's also, I guess, a mindset, right? Like some, when we think of seeking help, particularly in academic contexts, there can be a tendency to think that I need help because I don't have what it takes to do what the job needs. So at the, you know, the, the assumption there is that there is a level of inadequacy, that I'm not enough yet. So if I seek help, somebody else will give me the thing that I, I don't yet have. Whereas I think, you know, there's another way of thinking about seeking help and and thinking about 
you know, what perhaps research means, that it's a messy process. Actually, nobody knows the answer. And if I think about it, like, you know, I, I still feel like I'm scratching the surface of my research. And ev with every project, I perhaps know a little bit more, but it's also many detours back where I think, oh, actually, I know nothing. So, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting kind of experience it, when we think about learning and asking for help when we don't think we know enough. Um, you know, in the context of just being open to what we don't know, rather than that we don't know this particular set of data or body of knowledge that, you know, somebody else will be able to give us or that there are softwares and, and tools that we can just imbibe or ingest and then we'll, we'll get there. So it's almost like, you know, we're not thinking about it in terms of a quantifiable, I don't know enough and I do these five things and I now know everything. Um, rather, like I think learning is I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> and then I know and I'm like, this feels fantastic. And then I don't know again. And so I think there's a there's a really kind of wonderful experience in that kind of openness to uncertainty that is also the foundation for creativity. And I think that's kind of what I talk about in my writing course and the sort of free writing exercises that we do that you really just sit with what you don't know and work with all of the kind of emotional dimensions that come with that. And then, you know, sometimes you know and sometimes you don't, and, and that's all part of the messy processes of doing research, of thinking. Well, in, in some ways, your, your writing class sort of, you know, sums up a lot of what's going on in this paper because you're giving all of us concrete skills that we can use in our own research focus. So we have a class of people that are studying, you know, totally different things. So you're, you're not telling us like the specific thing of, of how we can improve, you know, our field. You're giving us concrete mm. tools that we can, we can use. And, and you had this great quote on um, page 12. I guess this is, um, who wrote this? Metcalf and Game? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You said uh, ethical te they wrote ethical teaching is about opening up students, ensuring they do their best at whatever they do. Um, so it's it's kind of a cool thing because your class, I thought, like you you weren't really saying, okay, I'm not I'm not here to tell you how to become better at your specialty because I don't know your specialty, but this is thing these are concrete things that you can use and go and find your own path. That was that uh, so it was great. I, I I thought you know coming back and reading this paper. Now knowing that this is where you you sort of uh, how you think about teaching, um, mm. it, 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 it's it's kind of cool. I mean, in some ways, as a teacher, you have to be humble because you, I guess, like the the the, the French te the the French teacher didn't know Flemish. Like you have to be humble in in some ways. Like you're like you know your role is to t help people to teach. You're not you're not this all knowing person who knows you know every subject in your class. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think some of that also came from feeling totally fraudulent when I first started this job, like to be completely honest. I, <laughs> fraudulent. I mean, I was like a Flemish teacher in Rancière's book. I, you know, I found myself in a, in a writing course with, you know, 25 people from very different disciplines. And there was a huge learning curve for me because I think, you know, when I first started off, I thought, okay, I've got to give them, you know, you know, everything they need to really do do the writing in their field really well. And so I, you know, I worked really hard and I tried to find many different ways of showing examples and, and having templates for how you write different sections of, you know, whatever it might be, the literature review or, you know, the discussion section. And then over time I realized that, you know, that template-driven kind of teaching and learning 
uh, doesn't always make for the most engaging classroom discussions. And in fact, what students in my classes, precisely because they're from such different disciplinary backgrounds, what they have in common is the experience of research as an utterly confusing, but also incredibly exhilarating experience because you're kind of finding your own path, each of you. Um, and, you know, that really spoke to me because that was my experience of being a, you know, being a research student and now being a researcher, that every time I'm looking for my own path and I need to be open to the uncertainty of that path because that's where the best ideas come when I'm open. And so I think I built, I started then to build my writing kind of causes and support that I, that I offer around that logic. Um, and, and that was how I, I think, yeah, that you're now reminding me that that was exactly the time where I started to read Rancier and, and to put together this paper. Well, let, let's circle back to, to Rancier where he opposes the teacher-student hierarchy and then that's that's one end. Okay, so if we're going to do an extreme version of that, um, you totally break apart the hierarchy. I would say you're you're in the spot, you know, at the ideal spot where you're respecting student agency, but you're you're guiding students toward their own path. And let's go to the other, um, the you know, the other extreme where in Japan, where you know the teacher conveys information and the student listens. Okay, and there's no really feedback, you know, going on. It's just sort of. You know, you sit down, I stand up, you, you, you listen. I mean, that's, that's one problem in Japan as a language teacher because w when we get the students in, in university, they've, they've been used to sitting, literally sitting and silently. Um, so when you, they come to university, they say, okay, so what's your name and what do you think about this? And there's dead silence. Um, mm. um, so I guess the, the, uh, going to the other, like let's say, let's take, let's take Rancier's uh, philosophy to the extreme where we totally break apart uh, the, the teacher-student hierarchy, and the students are sort of controlling their own destiny, right? Um, they're, they're, they're making the, the main decisions. Let's think of a world in, in that way. Um, and, and I don't know Montessori. I don't know, what, I, I don't know anything about Montessori. I've heard it's sort of similar, where they're, they're really trying to help students or young children find their own path. But if mm. we're going to take it to the extreme... I would say I've experienced something to, to the extreme where when I first came to Japan, I taught at something called an Eikaiwa, which is an English conversation school. And the reason why these English conversation schools exist is because the English education in Japan is, is actually quite poor. And um, actually, it's been the, the level has been decreasing year by year by year, where Singapore is just going, you know, Singapore is incredible right now. It's number one in Asia. Um, and part of the reason is the education system, what I just mentioned, how there's this teacher is talking, students are listening, and then they come to, uh, and then they get older and they, they need to improve their English. So they go to these private education, uh, education centers for profit education centers. And what I found was really interesting because when I first came to Japan, I was a teacher trained in teaching English. You know, I came into this, this, uh, this Eikaiwa, there's a few of them in Japan, you know, the, you know, big, big businesses, almost like a McDonald's, every city will have one of them. And they're all about, you know, when you go to this one lesson, it'll be the same at any city you go to. And when I first came there, they trained you to do a certain way. And you're not supposed to veer from the script in any way. And you're supposed to do it exactly the, the way they, they tell you to do for quality control. But then what I noticed there would be like, uh, for example, there'd be a, a complaint from a, a, a student or a quotation customer, right? And mm -hmm. I remember uh, my manager brought me into the office and they said, okay, well, we got this complaint from one of your students. I said, okay, cool. Well, what, what class? Oh, we can't tell you what class. Okay. Uh, which student was, oh, we can't tell you what student, but from now on, we want you to do this, 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 and this. And what I thought, what I thought was interesting is, is their business model 
was actually catering towards the customer, not the student. So they didn't really have a firm idea of maybe a core concept of their pedagogy. Their mm. main focus was a business where they actually wanted the, the customers to keep coming back almost like a gym. And I thought it was a really fascinating experiment where the customers are dictating the pedagogy. And really the pedagogy was, was – there was no pedagogy. It was just they wanted to leave the lesson feeling good. That was the main thing. Which goes back to your point where it's like, okay, learning sometimes is uncomfortable and you have to go through tough things. But the, their, their idea was, okay, they, they, they do, they're immersed a little bit in English. They leave the lesson feeling good where I had, you know, trumpet teachers that were really tough on me. And so then when I went and I played with international players, um, I, I felt good about it because I was like, okay, my, my teachers are preparing me the right way. Where these, these students or customers, if they were to travel to Singapore or China – I mean, they would be, they, they might have had a good feeling in Japan, but then they would just be, you know, slapped in the face about how terrible their English is. So mm. it's, that was, that was very, very, so I think that's the risk of taking Rancier's model too far, right? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, look, it's a, that's a really interesting story. Um, I mean, because it also cuts into, you know, kind of cross cultural differences in, you know, learning institutions and, you know, sort of, values to do with education um i suppose like you know the thing that i would say about your kind of summary of roncier um is that for roncier i think what he would also emphasize is not that there is you know that because we think about you know student learning student-centered learning that there is no need for the teacher um, but I think what he would say is that, in fact, there is every need for the teacher, but it's a different idea of the relationship between learning and teaching, because fundamentally learning, you know, is a little bit of teaching. You're kind of teaching yourself how to learn, but teaching is always also an experience of learning. You're learning what it is to be in this role. And so I think for Rancière, that because it's always a relational dynamic, um, the you know the ignorant schoolmaster is in some ways successful in, in quotation marks precisely because he or she is open to not being in a position of authority or power or the one who just knows it all, uh, you know who's giving kind of advice that the other person doesn't. So I think that you know like and he talks about it in terms of like you know having a starting point of equal intelligence. So I'm not telling you what you don't know, but I'm telling you what I know and what my experiences have taught me and you can make of it what, you know, you will. I mean, of course, like, you know, th things get a little bit more challenging in, you know, different cultural settings. And to be fair, like Rancier is a, you know, is a European white man in a, in a French, you know, kind of educational system. So that itself has its own biases um, and that won't be a system that will be easily applicable or at least not wholesale to every other like cultural context. So, I mean, all of that needs to be taken into consideration. But I, I see what you mean, that, um, you know, everywhere you, you go, if it's a different, if you're met with a different cultural experience of learning, I mean, that in itself is a, a learning experience, right? If I think of, you know, like I had a fairly, uh, uh, not rigid, but a very structured and disciplined learning experience as a child growing up. Um, and even though, you know, in hindsight, I could say I, I hate it because it just felt really kind of um, monotonous and boring and, um, you know, overly strict. I think that I would be remiss if I didn't also say that my sense of discipline and sheer persistence came from all that. Mm. <laughs> 
So, I mean, it's like, you know, every starting point you have is just a starting point to encounter what learning means for you at that moment in time, in that developmental stage of your life, in whatever the cultural or national context you happen to be. Um, and, and so if you, if, you know, you're, you've got the opportunity and you're lucky enough to experience different educational systems, I think that, that you, you know, you probably have the best of different worlds. All right, let's, uh, let's hit a couple quick topics and then I want to get some advice uh, you can give to, to up-and-coming researchers and writers. Um, okay, so a couple quick things. So you mentioned, you mentioned Facebook, the, personal, the personalized learning platform uh, where, where uh, Zuckerberg and his wife donated $4.5 billion. And are you, skeptical? Uh, are you skeptical about this or do you think um, this is a good thing? I mean, I, I mean, you know, any any money donated to education, I think, you know, kind of at, at a general level is a good thing. But I mean, I couldn't really comment too much on on Facebook because this, I guess, this little piece of um, evidence, you know, was something that I picked up on when I was writing this in 2015, and I think would look quite different for Facebook now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a very strong opinion on, you know, I guess Mark Zuckerberg and and his initiative, but I think in my, I guess my response to the general frame of personalized learning, I mean, in theory, it's great, right? Of course, we want things to be tailored to the needs of the individual. But I think when it's at the commercial expense of personalization, so, you know, a little bit like your example of the customer-based kind of approach that has no real pedagogical value sitting underneath it, but that, you know, it just goes what the goes with what the customer wants. I think if it turns into something like that, then it runs the risk of being another capitalist version of, um, you know, having more because, because there's more rather than having something because there's value to it. Hmm. Uh, and then on another thing on, on page nine, something we talked about before, um, you had the, you, you, you mentioned, you said stated differently, the process of anticipating and labeling particular individuals as risky may itself work to further marginalize these individuals. The other, uh, anecdote that I wanted to give from my own life is I, I worked at a, a summer camp and there was a camper who was, who was autistic. And, um, I sort of took him under my wing a bit and I talked to his father and then we actually got him a job working at the summer camp. For, and then I think he worked at the camp many years after I left. Um, but his father, uh, you know, he, he always sort of, you know, writes me an email every every few years just to thank me because at that time he was 17 or 18 and his whole life he had been put around other autistic kids. And he said like from that the moment he entered this, this you know, environment where he wasn't marginalized and he was around other, you know, you know people who didn't have autism, his uh, development level to- totally changed his life. So, I mean, that is, that's, that is, I see that is as a risk when you, you know, some people might be learning disabled or they have certain needs that they need specialized needs. Um, But there is that argument that if you place people that have the same sort of deficiencies together, it can, you know, it can cause, cause a detriment. So I, I, I did, I did link onto that's a, that's a tough balance, right? Because mm-hmm. I guess it depends on the school, how many students per class and these, these sort of things, but that is something that people should be aware of. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a massive kind of minefield of complex political arguments, depending on, you know, where you begin. So, you know, like I, I don't have the answer by any means. And I think when I, like in my paper, it was probably 
not even well thought out in that direction. But I think you're, you know, you're kind of right in that it really depends as well on the individual and what yeah. they, you know, um, you know, and, and your experience with with this um, student with autism, uh, you know, that's one experience that, that they, obviously it sounded like a really positive experience for them to be around people who, they felt, you know, didn't, you know, didn't put them in a position of being marginal um, because of who they were or what they were struggling with. Um, but it might also be very different for somebody else. So I think that I think I guess like the thing that I would say is any program or any kind of way of systematizing um, or making standard, like you know what what a special needs program needs to be, or you know how a commingling of you know different identities can be. Any any program can't be overly standardized because mm. it also has to come back to you know the intersection between the individual, all of their conditioning and socialization processes with the environment that they're put in to learn. Yeah, I'm always fascinated when I, I read articles what uh, other countries are doing. Like, for example, I can't remember which country it was, but I think they were letting younger people move into nursing homes. Um, it might have been Amsterdam, where they found that if younger people were around the nursing homes, the, the elderly were healthier, happier, and so forth. And so they were offering free or cheap rent to younger people, uh, musicians and artists, uh, just to live there. And yeah, right. And so it was, they were just living there and hanging out and they'd come in say hi and, or the other countries where, you know, they're, you know, they, yeah, they sort of incorporate these worlds more. Again, going back to that point of not sticking into your own world and just yeah. incorporating with other people has these really uh, strong benefits to society. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, that, that, that's an interesting experiment. It sounds kind of really wonderful too. But it's just it, like you said. It's I, I think people try to make a standard because it's easier and maybe cheaper, and um, it's hard. Yeah, these these are these are tough these are tough questions that you're asking. Uh, to, they're also you know, really you know. big. Yeah, they're also really big kind of ethical questions that I think you know while they're really controversial, um, they they almost need to be controversial so we continue to keep these questions open for conversation and debate rather than that there's someone with the answer, um, whether it's a you know policymaker or a politician. So did you have uh, something you, you mentioned in your classes, make sure you have, you know, simple questions in front of you to guide you. This was a very complicated paper. You're, you're hitting a lot of topics. You're, you're talking about an anthropologist and a philosopher and, and these all these issues. Did you have a simple statement or question that was guiding you throughout this? that you had posted on your wall or something like How did you um, not get lost? How did I not get lost? I probably got lost many, many times <laughs> and through sheer willpower managed to put this through to the editors and got the paper accepted. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess the question that that's a really, you know, kind of high level question I had was what is the relationship between learning and teaching um, in mm. theory and in practice? Wow. And, and is this relationship confined to, you know, um, like human subjects, or can we open it up to have a larger conversation that is also about ecological questions? So this brings in like Bateson. So there were like slightly like kind of two kind of interrelated things happening, but they were both about what it means to learn, who learns, who's the subject who learns, and who's the subject who knows. Well, this this was a very bold endeavor. 
How long, how long did it take you to write the paper? I know it was a year between uh, submitting and being uh, published. Were there a few rounds of, of revisions um, when, after you submitted, and, and how long did it take to, to get it to submission? Um, I think it probably, I mean, surprisingly, I think I must have been just thinking about these ideas for a while. So I didn't remember the writing process being too arduous. Um, I probably took maybe, you know, six to nine months. I had some parts written on Bateson already because of some work that I did with his, uh, text a while ago. And then I, you know, obviously tied him up with, uh, Rancier's work. So probably, you know, six months to nine months of actual drafting and, and revising. And then through the submission, I mean, Critical Studies in Education, you know, it's a very efficient journal. Um, it's probably one of my, you know, in terms of the pipeline, even though one year feels like a long time, but from reception to acceptance, uh, that's actually not bad for, for an academic journal. So I must say that, you know, I got through the editorial process um, fairly smoothly. Were there a lot of... Um... I'm just curious about how the editors handled ha- handled this. Did they tell you to take some things out or did they tell you to clarify things or did they pretty much leave it as is? Yeah, I think what I started off with, like the first set of, I now remember, the first lot of feedback, I think the original version of the submission was a lot more theoretical. So I probably had more of, you know, just putting Rancier's work into conversation with Bateson. And I think one of the strongest uh, pieces of advice that I got from the reviewers was to, you know, kind of tie it to something a bit more practical, a bit more illustrative of the thing that I was trying to evoke through my, my, you know, theoretical close reading. And I think one of the editors had suggested, you know, things around like, you know, education and learning movements today. So at the time, like they might have suggested a few of the references that I put in as well around personalized learning um, and, you know, the, the idea of the therapeutic education that we now have. Um, so I think I kind of weaved that in. So I cut out a bit more of the theoretical work and put in some more of the examples that they suggested. And it only went through one round of revisions, which um, lucky for me, I guess. Well, that's that's uh, that's great. So again, the the article. There's lots more we could talk about, but we've already hit an hour, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So the the article is a post-human pedagogy with Rancier and Bateson, and I guess just to finish up. Um, for me, the thing that really stuck uh, from, from your class was even from the first class where just the the, the phrase establish a writing practice um, mm-hmm. really it was really powerful to me. And uh, I made a concerted effort to do so. And over time, I started to feel much better about myself and, and everything. Um, is there is there something that you can offer young uh, researchers and and writers some some tips uh, maybe something beyond that 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 really stuck with me I'm sure you know you have you have tons of students so maybe there's different things that have stuck with other people as well is there any sort of advice you can you can you can give um, yeah I mean I think you've just hit it like the the one biggest piece of advice that served me well um, through you know in the ten years since I've kind of you know started the research career. And, and then as a, a writing um, is, is really that, like to establish a routine that works and to really put writing um, at the forefront of that. And I mean writing in the, in the kind of messiest sense of the term. So I think if you're writing every day, even if it's for 15 minutes and you're just doing some free writing, for me that experience of regularity is also 
an experience of giving myself permission to fail, to play, to experiment, um, and to really just get into the habit of doing something like writing, um, like it, like I was brushing my teeth, like I wouldn't forget to eat um, a meal. I wouldn't forget to, you know, kind of put my shoes on when I go out of the room. So same thing like with writing. I think if you can embody it in the way that it becomes part of your lived experience, then then that becomes your lived experience. And that would be, for me, the biggest piece of advice I give to any incoming postgraduate or young researcher um, to just keep writing and to not be afraid to test any ideas, however ludicrous they may sound to you, to test them on paper and then figure it out once it's on paper. Well, I, I have to say your class was uh, one of the better classes I've ever taken in my life. And it was and it could be my own bias because I really needed help at that time. <laughs> so maybe if I took it at a different time, it wouldn't have been so powerful. But it did help me get over the hump and I'm, sort I'm of it did. break the back of that that paper I was stuck on. So I'm sort of moving on to other things. Um, so I, I've put your um, email address in, in the show notes if people want to contact you with any questions. And um, uh, again, th- thank you, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Chu. Thank you so much, Jonathan, and all the best with your research. And I'm sure I'll, I'll catch you around, like probably on a virtual platform, hopefully in the near future. My goal is to one day come on campus. <laughs> well, you've got to let me know then. I'll buy you a coffee. I'll, t- I'll take you up on that. Sure. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook facebook.com slash lost in citations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.